Hello and welcome to the Rogue Monkey podcast. My name is Kevin Pickard. We are back with season three and we've got some incredible shows lined up for you over the coming eight weeks. Keep up to date and interact with us as we go through season three on Instagram and Twitter using the tag at Rogue Monkey Pod. This podcast was started to share different stories of success creativity and those who have overcome challenges in their lives with the aim of inspiring others to challenge themselves and the status quo. So this season we are starting with a story from one of the most jaw-dropping scandals in the sports world. In June 2020 a documentary on Netflix was released called Athlete A. This shone a light on the culture of fear and abuse in USA Gymnastics and gave hundreds of athletes a voice who had suffered for years. 12 years before this documentary hit our screens, a young woman called Jennifer Say wrote a book called Chalked Up. She spoke out, telling her story of her devastating injuries, her physical and mental health challenges, and how people around her who should have known better ultimately lost sight of her best interests as a young girl who just wanted to be a gymnast. In today's episode, we speak to Jennifer about her journey, what inspired her to speak out, and how following her book, she went on to produce one of the most incredibly captivating, yet heartbreaking documentaries ever produced in sport. So without further ado, let's get into episode 17, Putting the Human Before the Athlete, a conversation with Jennifer Say, former international gymnast and producer of Netflix's Athlete A. Hello, Jen, and welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, obviously, the brief that I've done on the intro will give everyone a little bit of an idea, but if you could just give us a bit of kind of headline timeline of your story, where you started, kind of leading up to where we are now. Yeah, absolutely. So I had a sort of unusual childhood and was a very serious athlete. I was a gymnast in the 70s and 80s in uh, in the United States. I started out doing gymnastics in around 1975 and then kind of intensified that in 76 when the Nadia craze hit, you know, and little girls across the country were just enthralled with her and gyms started popping up all over the place. And I, you know, started competing pretty seriously by the time I was seven and made my first national team at 10. Um, ultimately moved away from home to train at a training center and, you know, was training 50, 60, whatever hours, <laughs> number of hours a week it was and uh, won the 1986 national championships. Um, and ultimately was a national team member for eight years. I unfortunately, despite my successes, left the sport pretty broken, I would say physically and emotionally, and um, suffered the kind of slings and arrows of that for a few decades, in fact, after, um, you know, it's the the culture of coaching cruelty in the sport that I think really damaged me, my body and my mind for quite some time. And, you know, it was a good 25 year journey to sort of put myself back together psychologically. And ultimately, I wrote a book in 2008 called Chalked Up, which was a memoir about my experiences, the good, the bad, and the ugly in the sport. And that kind of put me in the position of being an early whistleblower around the culture because I talked about the physical, emotional, and even sexual abuse. Um, The world wasn't quite ready for it then. And so the backlash was pretty intense. But uh, I gained more confidence in my voice as I wrote more and did more press and sort of became this voice for against abuse and athletics. You know, every time there was a 
scandal, I was called because there weren't that many people, if you Googled, that were willing to talk about it. So ultimately, that put me in the middle of the Nasser thing to some extent. And I got to know many of the survivors and the lawyers and the prosecutor and the reporters. And so I felt like this could be a cool documentary that really told the story in an emotionally resonant way. And more people watch film than read books or anything. So I thought it was a great way to kind of get it out there in a big way. And so I found directors and we made the movie and Netflix is running it right now. It's called Athlete A. That's um, that's something I want to unpick a little bit. So at what point going from the, the book and obviously all the backlash you got from that, did you think, you know, we need to get this to a much wider audience. Did you start getting support from other people in different industries that said actually we really want to bring this to life a bit? No, it wasn't quite that neat, I think. Um, you know, back in 2008 when I wrote it, like I said, the backlash was pretty intense. I mean, I was literally physically threatened online. It was the early days of the internet, and I don't think I understood what that was going to be like, you know, what it was going to be like in social media. Now I would predict better, but I didn't know then. And um, I was very careful in what I was willing to say. I was just watching an old clip of myself back from 2008 on one of the morning shows, and I am sort of struck by how careful I was, you know, and I think I was trying to manage the blowback, and I wasn't willing to sort of say, you know, this is a commentary on the broader culture. I said, this is my story. This isn't representative. It's not an indictment of the sport, but I was really protecting myself. But as, um, you know, behind the scenes, young women were reaching out to me and saying, this is my story. I felt like I was reading about my own life. Thank you. I feel less ashamed. I feel like I can rebuild. And so my confidence built a little. And as more and more sort of scandals started to break, and I was called upon more and more to either write about the subject or talk about the subject, I think I got confidence in my own voice. I also just got older and didn't really care what people thought anymore. Um, And then you know, the Nasser thing broke in the U.S. and there were so many women to stand with. And it's easier to have more confidence and speak more bluntly and more directly when you're standing with an army um, and not alone. And so I've just over the years kind of been more sure of that I'm right, frankly, you know, and that this is a culture that needs to change. And it is abusive and cruel not every single coach but way 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 too many and the good ones are more the exception and that's really really unfortunate and it's damaging young girls not just across the united states but in other countries as well and so it wasn't like this planned thing that i was like i gotta get this message out there it was just sort of one thing happened and then another and i became more enmeshed in that community of survivors of outspoken survivors and i felt like hey, I think I'm in a unique position to do this and tell this story through film and use the Nasser um, story as a way to kind of delve into the broader culture of abuse. <clears throat> does that answer your question? I'm not sure it does. It does, and it's because obviously we only see, I guess, the finished product. It's <clears throat> it's really interesting for me to kind of pick back a little bit and see, especially from a confidence point of view, having the the book coming out in 2008 and then the the scandals kind of not breaking kind of on a global scale until kind of 2016. And, um, you know, in the last few weeks, they've obviously had a lot of Olympic reruns on TV and been watching all these various people popping up from maybe 2008, 12 and 16 and going, I've seen them in the last few weeks in the documentary. So what was it like kind of between that 2008 period when you first spoke out through to kind of 2016, where you felt like it was more publicly out there and it wasn't just directed at you? Actually, like you said, there was an army of you coming forwards. Yeah, I mean, look, it's I have a regular job. I don't sort of work in 
sports or athletics. I'm not a coach. I don't work in gymnastics. I, I work at Levi's. I'm the chief marketing officer there. So it's not like it was this sort of like intense eight year journey of like criticism. You know, I, I kind of dabbled in this on the side and I, I continued to write about it. I wrote an op-ed in the New York times as the Nasser story was breaking. And I, was often called upon as a source for many journalists. And, you know, sort of through that process, I definitely, like I said, kind of gained confidence in my own experience and my own voice, even post having written the book, right? And then the world started changing too, because you had the Me Too movement taking hold. And so there was this push and this impetus to listen to survivors and not dismiss them outright. Now, it is worth noting that still within the community, I mean, even after 50 credible survivors came forward, in regards to Nasser, within the gymnastics community, they were still dismissed and belittled and criticized and called, you know, unreliable narrators of their own story. And so, I mean, we had to get to 100 before real action was taken and real kind of support from the community became just impossible not to offer, you know. And even now, more and more women are coming forward to report coaches for physical and emotional abuse. And generally, you know, I'm in all the weird little community as a gymnast online the communities are not supportive you know it's still like what that's just tough coaching you're weak and so the 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 tenor of the conversation to to my mind still hasn't changed enough within the communities you know the real you know it's it's too easy to say like you just don't understand or you're too weak and this is how it's done and coaches defend it athletes even defend it parents defend it you know um, so there's a lot of a lot of uh, work to be done there. But, I, you know, I would say over the last eight years between 08 and 16, I just I continued to speak out and speak up and the movement built. Right. Whether it was the Me Too movement or this movement of athletes. And then you just had hundreds with with Nasser and I was able to stand with them. And, you know, like I said, it's easier to speak directly and with confidence when you aren't standing alone. <laughs> um and, you know, to also be helpful, I'm older than all of those women. And so I can also sort of serve as a, look, it can be okay. You can put the pieces back together. And, you know, my experience, I never met Nasser, and I um, was not sexually abused by my coaches, though I was sort of surrounded by it. And I, I write about that in the book, but <clears throat> the impacts of physical and emotional abuse are also really insidious, <clears throat> excuse me, and stay with you for some time. And so there's a sort of an understanding that we all have with each other. And I'm always struck by the fact as I meet more and more of the survivors, whether they're 16, 20, 30, 40, how similar our stories are. And I'm 51. So, you know, I get to be the elder statesman and sort of be a bit of a, a mentor and, and kind of like example that it can be okay and you can come through it. Going back to obviously you mentioned the book there. I work in the world of sport and I've been around many, many elite athletes and I've found there is a level of kind of professionalism and, you know, elite sport at a top level is tough. But I think the, the certainly with your story and obviously the kind of wider culture of gymnastics is the age, because obviously in certain sports, I mean, my sporting background is in swimming and generally our mm-hmm. elite Olympians are kind of in their late teens, early 20s. And certainly yeah. at the age of 10 and 12, they're having yeah. fun and reading the book where you talk about effectively like having your childhood taken away. It's something that yeah. doesn't matter whether you've got no experience of any sport, you understand yeah. your childhood. So it's kind of like bringing that to life a little bit. Did you feel like that's something now that's allowed a lot more people to kind of look back and go, oh, no, I you almost, you were so immersed in that world, you didn't see it. But then looking back. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, one of the things we talk about in the film, I think I might talk about it, I'm not sure, um, is it, it wasn't always this way. I mean, you know, in the 50s and 60s, I know I'm going back a long way, but gymnasts were women. They were grown women. I mean, they had children. And then they went to the Olympics afterward. I mean, that happens in other sports, right? Look at the Serena Williams. She's still competing at the top of her game and she's had a child. And that's somehow kind of unthinkable in gymnastics because the aesthetic and the kind of accepted um, body type is quite adolescent, you know, and we actually were told and believed, and that all sort of changed in the early seventies. You had Olga Corbett and then you had Nadia who was only 14 at the 1976 Olympics. And it just sort of shifted everything. And I think, I think the age, one, I think it's not necessary. I think you can do it later in life. And we're seeing that um, move a little bit. But I think that there were benefits to the coaches and to the sport in having the girls be young. You know, you could sort of evoke more obedience. Um, and, and I think the young age is um, – it intensifies issues you would see in other sports as well. I mean, I think individual sports are particularly challenging. That sort of one-to-one -one relationship, child coach. I know some of the same issues I describe in gymnastics absolutely happen in swimming. Um, and I think you probably know that. And in USA Swimming, there's been all kinds of issues. We see them in skating. Um, but I do think there is something about gymnastics because of the youthfulness of the, you know, the age makes it kind of just right, you know, right for problems. But I, 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 and I think the culture is just one of obedience and cruelty. I, there is something also because it's a sport that requires a lot of touching from the coach. They're spotting you. And so there's this boundary thing that's not ever established, which is problematic <laughs> also. And it's required. You need to be spotted. That's just how it is. But um, I think it creates other, other issues in the sport. The, the other issue I think in gymnastics is the danger. Um, it's a very dangerous sport that's psychologically incredibly challenging as a child. You're living in fear all the time, you know, not just of the coach, but of actual life-threatening injury. Or I was, I mean, if you thought about it for a second, you'd have to think about that. You know, it's not like racing in the pool or on the ground where if you have a slow day, you're just slow. Um, if you have a bad day, you can land on your head and break your neck. Talk so that creates a whole other say, kind of trauma, I think. Share your story, like, because I've obviously read it, but the, what happened to your leg and obviously the knock-on effect of that was something I was genuinely horrified reading it, thinking this is a child this has just happened to. And then it's not just the actual injury, it's the knock-on effect of, you, you know, it wouldn't wasn't treated as in you would expect a normal injury to be cheat, cheat, treated. So it was, it was fascinating but horrifying to kind of explore that a little bit yeah i mean anyone who wants to watch it i've never watched it but you can find it it's probably the first video of me that comes up i broke my femur at the world championships in 1985 in montreal um on bars on my last event i fell from the bars and the way you competed in international competitions back then is the the uh, equipment was actually on like a podium. I describe it as like a large ping pong table and everything sits up high and the coaches weren't allowed on the podium with you. And so, you know, they couldn't spot you for safety. They could nothing. And, and they also couldn't really often see. So I fell on a very early move in my bar set and they couldn't even really see what was happening. They thought I just fell and was going to get back up, which was not going to happen. I mean, it felt like eons before they got to me and realized there was something seriously wrong but um so I fractured my femur I was rushed to the hospital um went into surgery 
and that's a pretty serious injury, as you can imagine. It's the largest bone in the human body. And the doctors were all sort of confounded because they'd only seen this in car accidents. That's the kind of force required, like a serious car accident. Um, I was beside myself in the ambulance on the way to the hospital with my father because I just felt like my career was over and I was just starting. It was my first world. It was... Um, and I felt like I, you know, I, I remember this moment and it makes me sad just to think about it. Cause I was like, I, I said to my dad, I'm not anything without gymnastics. Like how can a child feel that way? That's, that's ridiculous that I should have ever felt that way, that I didn't have value without the sport. Um, but that's how I felt. And that's what was so devastating for me more than even the pain. At any rate, I did come back and nine months later is when I won USA championships, but I came back so fast. I did not allow my body to heal. I, you know, had three different casts. Like we kept trying to downgrade the cast so I could train in it, you know, make it lighter, make it move. It had a hinge. I was on training bars with a full leg cast, which I can't even imagine how dangerous that is. Um, and that's one of the sort of typical strategies in the sport is you don't allow injuries to heal, you know, and we had a doctor that was close to our coaching staff who kind of just cut every corner to get us back out on the floor. It's interesting because that very serious injury hasn't really resulted in any long-term damage for me, literally from the femur. But what it did do is, as I was training, I aggressively favored the other leg um, because the right one wasn't so good. I'd <laughs> broken my femur and I ultimately seriously injured the left ankle, which was, I would say, the career-ending injury really for me. And um, I trained on that left ankle. I mean, it was like the size of a grapefruit and purple for two years and repeated visits to the doctor. He would say, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong. I mean, it was clear there was something wrong. And it wasn't until I was 40 and went to the doctor in pain that he said, how did you shatter your ankle when, you know, I can see that it's an old break, but it was shattered. And I, I didn't know that. I was told there was nothing wrong with it. So I trained on it that way for two years. And that has created long-term damage, of course, which you don't understand as a child. You think if I just endure this pain now, it'll feel better when I stop. But that that's not actually what happens. <laughs> and so I have grade four arthritis in my left ankle, which basically means I need it replaced. Um, and have for the last 12 years or so, but I, I haven't, I haven't done it yet because the ankle replacements aren't really that good. They're not as good as hips and knees. And so I'm sort of hesitant to do it, but anyway, yeah, it's the knock on effect and it does create long-term damage and you're not even, I don't know what I would have chosen. I'm not sure I would have understood it at that age. You know, if you continue to train on this, this could happen, but I didn't even know, you know, I didn't even have any understanding. And so I regret that now. <laughs> um, something I'd like to just pick up a little bit, because I know from reading the book, you've got a brother who kind of sat alongside you on this journey, but obviously from a very different angle. And now you've had the book out and you've had all these amazing kind of positive experiences and to say that a lot of people are now speaking up. Has that change things where actually both for you and probably for many other siblings you know around the world who have got siblings in elite sport actually be able to look and go I understand now and previously they probably didn't yeah it's interesting I mean my brother was also an elite gymnast so he did have some understanding um he was really good and he was also a member of the national team um and he was a two-time NCAA champion for for his team at Stanford so he certainly was competing in the sort of level that I was I sort of achieved a titch 
higher success. And I think, so our challenges perhaps as siblings were a bit different than maybe others where, you know, one child's in the sport and one isn't at all. Um, I, I think what, and he and I've talked about this quite a bit. What was hard at the time is when I wanted to walk away because I was just basically falling apart emotionally and physically. I think that was hard for him to understand because I had achieved that kind of next level of success that he was hoping for. We also lived apart for a long time because I moved away to train. So we weren't really as close as we as we could have been at only two years apart. We ultimately went to the same college together and became close then. And I cheered him on from the stands. Um, and I think when he read my book, because he read an early copy before it was published, I think we both kind of came to realize what different experiences we had as athletes, as gymnasts, as children in the same home. And I think he was like, I didn't know that stuff. You know, I didn't know what was going on. And I didn't know his life was so different than mine either. Like your children are in their own bubble, right? <laughs> um and so I think that helped us kind of bridge the gap and just start talking about all of those those things, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And it's really nice to hear because I think reading it all, you think this must have been, like you said, you had the childhood taken away. So to be able to kind of reconcile that and actually be able to watch him succeed like once yeah. you're out of it is obviously that's a, that's a nice positive thing. Um, I've got just a couple more things to ask. Firstly, okay. let's talk some positive stuff. Um, okay. You talk again about having a, one coach that you had on part of your career that was absolutely wonderful. So just yeah. really to share, having seen the absolute worst of the sport, just bring to yeah. life a little bit some of those amazing positive experiences that you had. Yeah. And to be clear, I had a lot and I think they're in the book. I mean, you've read it I, and I think the book ends. I haven't looked at it in a while, but with I miss it every day. So yeah. clearly there's some incredible experiences. I, I've been asked to describe you know, what it feels like on a good day. And it's a really hard thing to describe, but it's just pure freedom and joy. I mean, you're defying gravity. Like on a day that it goes right, either in competition or just in the gym at practice, like I'll literally never replicate that feeling in my life again, you know? And so it's intensely joyful and fun when it's good. And if you have a coach that's supportive, that makes it all the better, you know, that isn't constantly tearing you down. And I was lucky enough between the ages of about nine and 13 to have a coach that you mentioned. Her name was Lois Musgrave. She's since passed away, but just everything you would want a coach to be, like an educator in every sense of the word and sort of viewed her job as using sport to help raise healthy young women, bodies, minds, you know, using sport in the best possible way to kind of further you as a adolescent and then ultimately an adult, not solely about winning and medals and any of that would never sacrifice your health or well-being. And unfortunately, and, and, and when I trained with Lois, I made the national team and I did quite well. And she was always incredibly lovely to me. And I just wanted to get to the next level. You know, I was competing on the national team, but I was like in the top 12, not the top six. And I wanted to knock on the door of that next level. And so I pushed my parents to let me go to this other gym. And, you know, who's to say I couldn't have done it with Lois? I don't know. I, you know, I, I don't attribute the success I had at the other gym to their cool tactics. I think that I was lost in the sport because of that. And I think kinder, more supportive coaching would have allowed me to further my career. I think this notion that that kind of coaching is what produces champions is, I think it's bullshit, frankly. I know so many young women who were lost through injury and just psychological and emotional damage from that kind of coaching who were incredibly talented, you know, high ranking, um, high ranking athletes. So 
but that was the accepted methodology. And I thought that's what I needed to get to the next level. So I left the kind, loving, supportive coach to go to um, a very different kind of environment, unfortunately. But there are amazing coaches out there. And I, I think um, coaches that sort of imagine themselves as teachers and child champions, first and foremost, is what I would like to see more of, you know, and that doesn't mean you need a coaching program where everybody wins and everyone's always a winner. Cause I think one of the most valuable aspects of sport is learning that you can lose and it's okay. And you can dust yourself off and try again. Okay. One more question. You've obviously been on this, it's incredible, but obviously some very challenging aspects to the journey. What, when you look back now, obviously, you know, children and into your adult years, have you looked back and gone, what was the biggest lesson from all of that? What what have you taken away if we can find both positives and negatives to say, I've really learned something there? Yeah, I mean, there's probably a lot. But the thing I would like people to take from the film, both parents and children, is you need to give your children the gift of believing in their own experience and their own voice and the permission to use it. Um, Cause I just didn't have that. And I had great parents and who would have thought they needed to tell me before I went to a gym that I needed to stand up for myself, but they did need to, cause I didn't. Um, and I think I would have had their voice in my mind if I, if I knew that. And I think the, the insidiousness of the abuse is that you come to not believe your own experience, right? You think you're hungry, you're told you're fat. You think that your ankle hurts or is broken and you're told you're lazy. So that turns the world upside down for you. You don't believe what is happening to you is happening to you. You believe any sort of abuse heaped upon you is your fault and that you provoked it. And it took me 30 years to unwind that. And so what I, I now believe that if this is my experience, that that really happened. It's not my truth, it's the truth. You know, when you yell at a child and call her fat, lazy piece of garbage, it is the truth that that is abuse. That's not my truth, that's the truth. And I should be able to say that and say that's not okay and you don't treat kids that way and not get pushed back on that idea, you know? Um, but I, I, what I, I want kids, young women and young girls in particular, because I think they struggle with this more, to know that their experience matters and that they have a right to determine what, how they are treated by other people and what is okay and what is not. And that parents need to teach their children that, that they have that right. Um, you know, that comes from a negative place, but I think if you do it proactively, then the negative stuff might not happen or is less likely to happen. So that's my big learning. So as I think about raising four kids, I just want them to believe in the power of their own voice and experience and know that that's valid. Jen, that was a wonderful message for us to finish on there. Thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Well, what a start to season three. Prior to this interview, I read Jennifer's book. And if you found the documentary captivating, I can promise you the book is even more gripping. There is an updated ebook version linked in the show notes that I cannot recommend enough. Again, thank you so much to Jennifer for sharing some time with us and her insights from her journey. You can follow her on Twitter at Jennifer Say. If I had to break that conversation down into a single takeaway message for coaches, parents, team staff, and anyone else who is responsible for young people in sport, for me, it is this. Irrespective of performance level, we are all responsible for the experiences and journeys that we support young people on. 
and I use the term people and not athletes. The person comes first and is at the core of every decision. Their physical and mental health and well-being, their experiences, and ultimately what is in their best interests. Jennifer's positive experiences from her earlier coach reminds us of the positives that sport can bring. As the saying goes, a good coach can change a game, but a great coach can change a life. Looking ahead, what do we have in store for you going forwards? Well, follow us on our social media pages or head over to our website to see what is coming up, the links for which are all in the show notes. Next week, we speak to television presenter and journalist Jake Humphrey, someone who has a lot of experience observing, interviewing and unpicking the stories of successful people, both from his TV work in many sports and his incredible show, The High Performance Podcast. Thank you so much again for listening in and we hope you join us again soon.